Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is my old friend, Andre Morgana. And if you happen to have a background in the TM movement, you may remember her as Andre Leonard. Um, and Andre and I have similar backgrounds up to a point. Uh, we both became teachers of Transcendental Meditation a long time ago. She in Rishikesh, India in 1969. I in Estes Park, Colorado in 1970. And we both taught on the East Coast and eventually all over the place. In fact, we even taught together briefly in around 1978 or 79 or so in Rhode Island. And um, we both went on a lot of these long courses in Europe uh, where we would meditate for 8 to 10 hours a day for months at a time. In, in Andre's case, two years straight, I think. Um, and uh, then we also sh both share the distinction of not being in the TM movement anymore, but of looking back on it all with appreciation uh, and having branched off in different directions. She so radically that it's hard for me to even conceive of some of the things she now experiences and talks about, but that's what we're going to get into in this interview, and I think people will find this interesting and a little different than a lot of the interviews I've done. So welcome, Andre, and thanks for your patience in our getting this together. Thank you, Rick. I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be fun. Yeah. So uh, let's take it somewhat chronologically uh, to kind of lay a foundation in people's understanding of, you know, where you're at and what, you, what you've been through and so on. So you might want to, you can start wherever you want, but you might want to start, well, you start in your teenage years if you want to, but, um, you know, that whole experience in Rishikesh might be a, a good starting place also. I guess you were there the year after the Beatles were, and uh, well, you, know, you might want to talk about that whole experience. I um, grew up in Berkeley, California, mm -hmm. and was part of, um, uh, actually when I grew up in Berkeley, it was the 50s, it was very middle class, but then it began that whole transition in the 60s, and I was married at that time to Lou Leonard. And he was the one that actually had found Transcendental Meditation. He was looking for spiritual practices. And we went to a lecture that was given by Jerry Jarvis and his wife, Debbie. Mm -hmm. And they were so new at it that they were reading the lecture notes on a piece of paper. <laughs> and, uh, from, and then, um, let's see, um, about a month later, they arranged for a course in Berkeley, and Beulah Smith was my instructor. And I was so amazed because I was part of that whole 60s environment. And... She was an elderly lady, very um, elegant, and um, it kind of was a, 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 a twister for my mind, you know, how could somebody like that be meditating? Um, um, but, you know, we started TM, and within a week we were just uh, really um, sold on the whole idea, and then Maharishi came to uh, Humboldt, and mm -hmm. from there we got interviewed and went on to uh, India. Well, that was the beginning of it all for us. and. Um, you know, our family didn't understand anything that it was about, and um, we really didn't either, but we just loved every moment of it, and off to India we went, and it really was exciting. Um, being there with Maharishi, we were there for six months, three weeks, uh, three months in uh, Rishikesh, and then we went up to... Um, um, Kashmir. Yeah, exactly. We, I think we were the last group that was in Kashmir before they uh, closed the country off, mm -hmm. um, and we were on Dal Lake. It was... One of the things that I really loved about India was that Maharishi introduced us to saints that people from the public wouldn't have the access to. Mm -hmm. We met Tatwala Baba, um, and that was amazing for me because he came and spoke to us for four hours, 
and he spoke only about the absolute. He didn't speak about anything regarding the relative. And to me, that was just, you know, I had, I had never grown up with anything like that before, and that was so exciting. Mm. Um, and even just seeing him as a person, when he got out of the uh, vehicle that they brought him to uh, Rishikesh and to Maharishi's uh, academy, um, he stepped out and he was just wearing a loincloth. His hair was all the way to the ground and back up again braided. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I think he was about in his 70s, but he looked like he was in his 30s. Yeah. And I've never seen this with anybody before or since, actually. You, you can see auras with people, but in his case, his skin, it was like there was a light bulb inside radiating from inside outward. Mm. And um, it was amazing. I just, um, all that was such an eye-opener to us and uh, so exciting and to be part of it and everything. We just loved it. Mm. There's a really cool book called The Journey Home by a guy named Radhanath Swami, that, whom I interviewed, and I highly recommend this book. Uh, you can find his interview on my website, but he ended up living uh, in caves with Tatwala Baba for quite some time, and Tatwala Baba asked him to become his disciple, but he, didn't, he declined and went on and had other adventures, but uh, amazing. It's like autobiography, uh, autobiography of a yogi on steroids or something. This book is like <laughs> so exciting. Anyway, so continue on. <laughs> well, just that, and... Uh, yeah. Uh, actually, after um, Rishikesh, we went to Cambridge, mm -hmm. and that's where we started teaching Transcendental Meditation. And in those days, uh, 800 people a month were starting through the Cambridge Center. It was just amazing. Uh, we loved every moment of it. Um, uh, I actually, uh, there were people from Harvard Medical School that came, the head of Harvard Medical School, and that's where Herbert Benson first heard about Transcendental Meditation. I instructed the head of Harvard Medical School, so that was sort of exciting because, you know, I was still kind of a young person and, and all of this world was, you know, opening up and, and being very uh, exciting. We spent a lot of time, uh, Lou especially went around to all the colleges with Joe Clark, mm -hmm. and um, I did a lot of the uh, prep schools in the area, and um, it was a time when it was brand new to people. Uh, there were some uh, monks that came from Spencer Academy, the monastery in Massachusetts that wanted to start TM, and they had to get permission from the Vatican mm. to start Transcendental Meditation. It was so, you know, new to the world at that time, and it took about six months for that to happen, and uh, um, what Marshi did was he combined it with the science of creative intelligence so that they would have the full understanding of uh, the practice. And, mm -hmm. um, so lots of good and fun things happening during those days. Yeah, those are interesting. I was down in Connecticut at the same time teaching a lot of people. And in fact, you and I taught at one of the same prep schools, Taft, in, in Watertown, Connecticut, where I initiated John Hagelin, and you initiated a whole lot of people. And, so um, you initiated John Hagelin, but fun. Yeah, yeah, he was in a body <laughs> cast. And in case people don't know what we're talking about, he's a, a world-renowned physicist who's um, kind of uh, – become a, a real spokesman for the juxtaposition of physics and consciousness and um, he had been a wild and crazy teenager and had gotten in a motorcycle accident he was in a, in a body cast and I I was staying in the infirmary because I needed a place to stay while I was teaching and saw him lying there and he said what are you doing I'm saying I'm teaching transcendental meditation you want to learn he said yeah so, <laughs> <laughs> so I, great. I kind of set the whole thing up and instructed him there in his cast mm -hmm. Anyway, this is probably inside chatter that people aren't going to be so much interested in. But uh, so we'll continue on. Let's see. During, um, uh, let's see. Then we actually Maharishi started to teach people uh, outside of India how to be teachers in uh, Mallorca, Spain, and in uh, Fuji, Estes, Italy. Estes Park. Yeah. 
and, the, and so we participated in those. Um, then there was one point where we ended up in uh, Michigan, because that's where I was born. Hmm. And we were in Gross Point, Michigan. And um, one fun thing that happened there, which actually will lead into sort of my personal experiences with Transcendental Meditation, was uh, there was a young man that called the center, and um, he wanted us to go with him before a judge and to ask the judge to sentence him to meditate twice a day uh, for the, um, I, I even forget what it was, it was some sort of misdemeanor, but something that was involving the judge. And so we um, had permission to do that, and uh, the judge sentenced him to meditate twice a day. And then shortly after that, um, we had arranged for Maharshi to come to Michigan, and he was going to uh, Chicago after that. Um, we had him speak to uh, 500 people at the, um, for the, of the automobile industry, and uh, Lou and, um, oh, Jim, I forget his last name, uh, set up for Maharishi to speak to the Senate up in Lansing. And then uh, after that, Maharishi went to speak to a group of uh, thousands of uh, educators in uh, Chicago. And uh, we went there, and we were sitting in the front row, and uh, Maharishi uh, in the middle, and I don't know, it must have been 3,000 or 5,000 people, just a huge audience. And uh, Maharishi pointed to me and he said, tell him about Detroit. And so I knew what he wanted to say. So he wanted to hear, I have the people hear about the judge sentencing this young man to meditate twice a day. So I went up on the podium and uh, started to speak. And then all of a sudden, it was like I had no body. And it was like my whole consciousness filled up the room and it was like uh oh what do I do <laughs> where am I and I even looked down and I couldn't see my body huh. and my thoughts were occurring out in the middle of that this big huge enormous room they weren't even inside my head hmm. and I would just sort of like for a moment panic although it's like wow this is exciting this is consciousness huh. you know but fortunately I knew enough of what I was supposed to say and I just said it I looked at Jerry Jarvis and then I just sort of said it and then I got off the podium. But that was my beginning for really uh, appreciating what Maharishi was offering mm. in terms of uh, consciousness. It's a direct experience. It's something that's powerful, um, and it's all-pervasive. And that was really, the, I think, the, the beginning of me for uh, understanding that process. Although your description of that first glimpse might not be very alluring to people. You know, no body and my thoughts are out in the middle of the room. <laughs> like, Do I want that? <laughs> Well, what it is, is we're more than just this human body. Right. And our life is a consciousness that is unbounded. And, and um, once you have that experience, it also is accompanied by a tremendous amount of happiness and fulfillment. And so when you look at how people live their lives and the suffering that people go through and the problems they have, you know, it's such a contrast to that. Yeah. And so it's significant in that regard. But and right. obviously, during a first glimpse, it wasn't integrated, and it was sort of you know, strange, but obviously later on, it, yeah. <laughs> I guess we shouldn't have started the interview that way, but oh, that's you, all right. were, yeah. you were asking my story. No, that's cool. No. And, and people do, I mean, I get, people get in touch with me all the time, you know, that in many cases don't have any sort of inkling of spirituality or interest in it or anything, and they say, what's happening to me? You know, my, I'm going, my body's going into convulsions. And I looked it up on the Internet, and I'm, I'm reading about Kundalini, and what's that? And I, I refer them to somebody who's really been through a lot of that and you know, can help them, help them out. But um, in, initial spiritual awakenings can be disconcerting. 
it's true and you know we're really that first generation that's exploring it our our family our parents um didn't um know of these things you know maybe yeah. you, they would meditate but it would be sort of a simple closing the eyes and a simple sort of experience but we're now part of a phenomenon that's taking place worldwide where people really are um looking at these experiences and fortunately a lot of you know the scientific community's gotten involved to um give an intellectual understanding to it so it, it has its validity but on the other hand we really are kind of stretching the limits and uh mm -hmm. Uh, looking at things that um, weren't really understood long time ago. Yeah. Okay. So you were teaching in Detroit, and, uh, and then at a certain point you started going to these longer courses. Yes. Um, I forget when when did those start in the seventies. Well, we we started doing what they called those ATR courses, where we'd go for six weeks and meditate a lot for six weeks, then come home again for four and a half months, and then go over again for six weeks, and that was great fun. That went on for a few years, but the really long ones, the six month courses, started in about nineteen seventy five. And what they were for were um, Maharishi called us the governors of the Age of Enlightenment, the, the teachers of the Transcendental Meditation Program. So we were invited to go to Switzerland to um, not only engage in longer meditations, but it, because we were um, uh, more advanced in our practice of transcendental meditation, it was intended that when we were meditating, we would also have an impact globally as well. So um, we, um, I went over there, and um, each course was six months. Uh, we stayed in um, hotels on the off-season in Switzerland. And then every so often we would move to other uh, hotels uh, because of the um, oncoming ski season and all of that. Um, and I ended up staying there for two years. And uh, we did meditate eight to ten hours a day, and uh, it was pretty amazing. And, and the thing that was um, uh, most enjoyable about it was that Maharishi would travel from hotel to hotel because it was such a large body of people that we couldn't all fit in one hotel. And then he would spend a lot of time with each of us in our hotels uh, going into the advanced experiences of, of uh, meditation. Mm -hmm. And um, that I found, uh, I, I really love the whole process, not only of the, the concept of meditating and making life better, but for me I really loved going into the uh, exploratory aspects of consciousness and what it's all about and uh, the, the ramifications of it. And that was definitely an opportunity to do that. Yeah. In your uh, little bio on your website, you talk about de developed a profound direct personal experience of consciousness. And you also say um, that after a certain point, sort of consciousness became a continuum. There, it, was, it wasn't a matter of having it come and go or being lost or anything. The sort of unbounded aspect of consciousness was retained no matter what. And then you also begin to talk about um, development of perception of the most refined areas of the mind, the junction between consciousness and the emergence of thought. That was what <clears throat> took place for those two years. Mm -hmm. And Maharishi called it Ritam, mm -hmm. that, that place where um, there's the experience of consciousness and then something starts to manifest from consciousness. And in this case, we would focus on the emergence of a thought coming into the mind at that most refined level. And the ability to be able to see a thought at those more refined levels was also the process of expanding awareness. And then that was part of the process of expanding consciousness. And from there, I found that um, 
Although the first time I actually experienced the infinity of consciousness was way back in India during the teacher training course. And I remember that one where my eyes were closed and I was just kind of looking at that space right in front of my uh, eyes. And then all of a sudden it just opened to infinity. And it's like, and I kept looking into it and get more and more infinite and more and more infinite. I thought, wow, that's cool. <laughs> and that was way back in 69. But this did it in a more integrated way and more, um, you know, your feet are on the ground a little bit more um, and in and, and, and a slower and, and more steady process. And um, it was interesting because at that point I became interested in that aspect of consciousness that, was, that is unbounded. Um, it's interesting because when we um, came back to uh, the United States and were involved in an ideal society campaign in uh, Rhode Island, um, and we were talking with Maharishi on the telephone about uh, the TM teachers that were on that project, about our experiences, and we were talking about qualities of consciousness. And one of the TM teachers was talking about a consciousness as power. And I thought, now that's interesting. I never thought about that. You never thought about that at all. I was always interested in the unboundedness of consciousness. Well, interestingly enough, that TM teacher uh, went on to become a very successful businessman. And I often thought it must have been all those years when he was looking at that, the strength and power of consciousness, that it kind of gave him that, that what he needed to be so successful in the business world. But for me, I was always interested in the unboundedness of consciousness. And um, I left the... I once uh, heard Marcy say that different qualities of nervous system will um, experience different qualities of consciousness just because of their constitution so some constitution so some for some the unboundedness aspect for some the bliss aspect for some maybe the power aspect and and so on um, for some the intelligence aspect so it's it's all the same consciousness of course but we tend to um, appreciate different qualities of it more or less depending upon our physical constitution interesting How, yes that's very that's very that's a good uh, insight I, I hadn't uh, heard that aspect before aspect before and it does make sense and I remember him talking about vastness because I, I actually I remember this so well because I had brought up the experience of vastness and, he, and that kind of prompted him to go into that talk of you know different qualities for different people so for you uh, you like the unboundedness which I guess is synonymous with vastness and that's always kind of been one of my favorites <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, in uh, the uh, early 80s my mother um, had um, health problems, so I came back to California to um, stay with her for two years until she passed away. And um, one of the meditators uh, gave me a uh, library card to the UC Berkeley um, Library. And uh, it, uh, uh, the UC Berkeley Library is this huge uh, library that has like eight or nine floors down underneath the uh, main library. They call them the stacks. And uh, so I started to uh, look into all the uh, Vedic uh, books that they had there, all the <clears throat> uh, uh, Vedic literature. And it turned out that uh, they have one of the largest uh, collections in the whole world. I think there's one other university that has a larger collection or a similar size, perhaps out of India. I don't know how it would be in India. But it took me eight months, let's see, no, six months, eight hours a day to read through all of their books. And I don't know Sanskrit, so I only read the English ones. 
but um, I just did that on a regular basis because I, while I was at home with my mother, I really didn't have any other activity to do during the day, so I would go down to uh, the UC Berkeley Library. And it was interesting because at the end of reading all of those books, about a couple of months later, I realized, oh my gosh, I can see unboundedness in the outer environment. And um, then I realized, okay, that's what they call Brahman. You know, it's one thing to be able to separate out consciousness from your daily activity and to identify it as an experience. And then another thing to identify the different qualities of consciousness like you were talking about. And, and, and let me just interject. When you say identify as an experience, it doesn't have this usual structure of experience where there's an experiencer over here and an object over there. So it's not like there's some little guy separate from consciousness that sort of experiences consciousness as an object, but so consciousness has this sort of self-referral quality where it kind of knows itself um, in, this, in a way which you can prob probably explain more eloquently. Well, no, actually, it's pretty interesting what you're raising because you could actually say it sort of both ways. You can observe yeah. consciousness initially, but then afterwards what you're saying is a, is a more developed state of it. Mm. And, and, and I think, you know, that consciousness itself reveals itself. Yeah. And uh, that's really beautiful what you just said. Um, in this case, it was like, you know, I'd be walking down the street and everything was unbounded. <laughs> And I thought that was pretty cool. So the cars were unbounded and the people were <laughs> unbounded. Just everything had the quality of unboundedness. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was, you know, and then, and, and it happened that from that point on, that quality has remained with me. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, you know, way back in those days, uh, because I was still kind of like a devotee and, and Maharishi was, you know, the, the teacher of teachers. And uh, I was had such tremendous respect for him and for what he was bringing forth and how fortunate we were to have access to the knowledge that he, he uh, gave us like that. But, you know, how could I myself have that experience? Mm -hmm. And it took me about three or four or five years to really accept that, yes, that's what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you read about Brahman in the Vedic literature. Well, the reason you read about it is not that it's something that happened to a group of people thousands of years ago or just to a special select group of people, but it's intended to happen to all people. So, you know, I kind of had to mature into that um, uh, experience before I would um, accept that, you know, even I could have that experience. Yeah. Let me uh, backtrack just a second because I just kind of remember that you glossed over something that people might have a question or two about. So we'll just talk about that for a bit and then we'll come back to this. And that is that you mentioned the word rhythm and a kind of examining the emergence of thought as it arises. And I meant to ask you at the time when you brought that up if you could give us a, an example of two or three such experiences and what the practical implications of that are. At that time, uh, when we were with um, uh, those courses in, in Europe, in Switzerland, uh, we were learning what uh, Maharishi called the TM City program. And um, in the Vedic literature, there are um, people that they call Siddhas that uh, were able to uh, perfect certain um, extraordinary feats. And that in the process of doing that, that was a uh, demonstration of the quality of their consciousness. So we were taught advanced techniques that would help to uh, strengthen different uh, qualities um, that would be representative of expressing um, uh, that quality of consciousness. So um, some of those techniques were to develop um, the ability to 
observe thought at the more refined levels and how to expand the perception. And then the, the value of that is if we could entertain a particular thought that was closer to the emergence of the thought, that the thought itself would instantaneously, if it was a thought about something, would instantaneously bring about that effect. And one case, of course, was the uh, levitation process, that he would teach us how to levitate. And if we were able to um, entertain that technique or that process right at that juncture point, then our body would lift off the ground. And if we were able to maintain the awareness of that thought at that first inception, then we would be able to maintain the body staying afloat for a longer period of time. Well, big emphasis on the word if, because 30-some-odd years later, I've never observed, and no one that I know of has ever observed, anyone actually defying Newtonian physics. You know, there's this hopping thing, but, there, but you know, if, if your legs were paralyzed, you wouldn't be hopping. Or if you weighed 300 pounds, you wouldn't be hopping. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's definitely an inner experience, but... Um, you know, you know, full disclosure would be that, to my knowledge, no one has ever demonstrated uh, levitation in the TM movement. I think there's two reasons for that. One reason that Maharishi explained during our course, which made sense to me, and later on I began to appreciate it more as I began to live outside in, the, in this world out here, is that there's a certain density in the world right now. And that density... Um, just the fact that, you know, you figure 50 years ago people weren't even talking the word consciousness. Now consciousness is more accepted. Uh, people understand it more. So there's, a, there's a, a, an awakening that's happening globally that, you know, wasn't there 50 years ago. And so there is a density that exists um, in our world, and that could be one of the reasons. Also, I think maybe he himself didn't have the exact technique to teach us properly. Because there are people in India that, you know, if you read the literature and so on, um, especially uh, with Paramahansa Yogananda, one of his uh, masters, you know, w was able to demonstrate it. So there have been people that have been able to sort of like get beyond that density and accomplish that, but certainly not on a, a wide uh, range scale. But that was the um, understanding of the mechanics of how you could do that. Yeah. And that and that was taking, I think we had about, you know, maybe 10 or 12, 15 different advanced techniques that we were doing, and that was one of them. And that was more the um, more extreme one, you know, like if you can really prove that. And I think, you know, in, in the future people will do that. Um, uh, it's hard to say when and where that will happen. It, it doesn't seem to have happened on American soil, but it's happened uh, in India. So, um, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, and perhaps for for the benefit of those who are saying so what at this point, um, I mean, what's the significance of that? Who cares if you can levitate? And the implication is that it has interesting implications for, um, you know, what consciousness really is, what the human physiology really is, what <coughs> what the relationship between human beings and the laws of nature actually are. Uh, I mean, you know, a couple hundred years ago, a jet plane flying over would have been miraculous to the average to anybody because there weren't any such things except for birds. But, you know, the, the <laughs> fact that uh, um, but now we take them for granted. So and, and we understand the laws of nature, which enable them to fly. And, you know, the suggestion here is that there are um, 
perhaps subtler laws of nature or uh, a sort of interface between human consciousness and laws of nature such as gravity, which if properly mastered could enable a person to counteract gravity. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a moot point still until it's demonstrated, but it has an, it's an interesting proposition anyway. But it does bring forth what you're saying is that, you know, this whole phenomena of consciousness, you know, somebody says, well, why am I interested in that? Because, okay, maybe they, they're not going for the levitation aspect of it, but just starting the meditation um, and if they have a correct uh, technique of meditation. And that way, I think we all received a really good technique of meditation from Maharishi, and we're very fortunate in that regard because we were able to fairly quickly identify consciousness as an experience separate from everything else. But what happens is when a person does experience that very simple state of consciousness, they also start experiencing peace, they start experiencing happiness, um, and then their life begins to have a greater stability. So it's d directly affected to the quality of the life that the person's going to, you know, enjoy in their uh, outer environment. And uh, sure, you and I discussing it uh, because we're so interested in the the concepts of consciousness, we kind of go way out into the uh, the deep end of uh, looking at it all. But it really is practical, and and uh, people have uh, from the meditation practice. Um, gained huge amounts of benefits in their lives oh, yeah. and um, you know their lives have gotten more stable they've uh, been able to accomplish more in their lives the students you know all of those things their, their grades are better and so on and so on yeah yeah no doubt um, and these days the, the David Lynch Foundation is teaching tens of thousands of kids in like inner city schools and people in prisons and all sorts of things and so you know consciousness doesn't just have a sort of a metaphysical significance. It's something which um, really enhances the nitty-gritty of life if, uh, if one sort of learns to uh, unfold it or experience it in its pure nature. Um, okay, so, you know, you had this experience. It's, it, now, do you feel like that it was the, actually the reading of all the Vedic literature, presumably the you know the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and the Upanishads and all those things that you must have read, that um, influenced you in such a way as to ripen this experience of what we're calling Brahman consciousness or seeing the unboundedness in everything or everything in in the, in the unboundedness. You can say it both ways, um, or do you feel like it was just sort of a, something whose time had come for you? It might have been both, but I think there's the value in reading the literature mm -hmm. and reading about this angle of it. Like there's a whole uh, process in that tradition called not this, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and so you, you involve in techniques that are not this, not net, this, net, not neti, this. Neti, neti. Right. And right. Um, so I would read about all of the different things that they were saying and, and – um, uh, I'll tell you what I, uh, and this kind of leads into where I went in the future with all of this. Um, they say that the um, Vedas were cognized by Veda Vyasa. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember reading about that at that time. And the one thing that he said when he cognized them that I thought was interesting was that he was receiving information. And the one thing that he asked for was to maintain consciousness while he received that information. So that was just a little seed that got planted in my brain somewhere along the line 
that later on you'll see in the interview that um, um, stayed with me and was kind of like my mentor as I, I decided to venture out into uh, new avenues of exploration. Yeah. Hmm. Um, okay. So uh, let's, do, let's start getting into those new avenues. So here we are, you know, four or five years, and you, after four or five years of this Brahmin consciousness thing, you kind of gain the confidence that, yeah, this is what they are all talking about in, in, you know, these ancient scriptures, and somehow little old me has, has come, right. to, come to enjoy this. Um, so I like the uh, byline on your um, Buddha at the gas pump where you talk about ordinary uh, spiritual people. Yes. And I figured, you know, I, I'm right in that category. I'm as ordinary as you can be. You know, I'm not, you know, some big charismatic figure like Maharishi was or anything like that. Yeah. And yet, well, he, he had his ordinary aspects too when you got to know him. <laughs> it's like a, there's a lot of, uh, you know, hoopla built up around sort of famous world teachers, but when you kind of get in the inner circle and kind of, you know, peek be, behind the curtain, yeah, you, the great Oz is not necessarily as, as flashy as he appears to the public, but nonetheless, I don't mean to, I'm not casting <laughs> disrespect. I, mean, I appreciate everything we got from Marishi and, and all these other teachers. There's just, they're all human beings, you know. Yes. That's yeah. right. That's right. And, and we're all in the same boat. Yeah. But, but it is true, though, that, you know, while we're in that boat, our lives do feel very ordinary and, and our day-to-day -day life is very ordinary. And, and yet we ourselves can have pretty amazing experiences. And I think both you and I are sort of in that category. I know myself I am. Um, that's really been where my heart sinks is I really like to explore all of these experiences. I really want to know what's out there. I really want to know our place in the universe. I really want to know um, much more than um, what I was ever taught growing up in this country. And now it seems to be coming more and more available, and lots of people are exploring it. I like to hear what people are saying. I like to um, look into uh, what they're doing. Uh, and then I've found my own ways of um, exploring that. And um, I know that what I'm doing right now is about 100 years ahead of its time. I know when um, Maharishi came um, to, when we were in Cambridge, when we were on the East Coast teaching, Maharishi came to uh, Poland Springs, um, Maine, to give a course. Mm -hmm. And I'm that sorry. was, yeah, exactly. And that was uh, the first time that he met with a group of uh, academicians, uh, uh, people from universities, and created um, a university himself. And um, during that time, um, this is just an example of what I'm talking about, time span. Um, Herbert Benson, who was from the Harvard Medical School, was um, very much involved in always seeing Maharishi whenever he came to the East Coast and, and wanting to talk with him and everything. But he was going to be objective and not start Transcendental Meditation. And um, that was his way of doing all of that. But yet he participated in all of those meetings and, and, and loved hearing and so on and so on. Uh, and then, and then years later, he started his own uh, program that he gave for people. But I remember about a year or two ago, I was on the internet, and at that time, you know, other than that, that was, you know, as much as Harvard was involved with the Transcendental Meditation Program, it was always on the periphery, and people as individuals getting involved. But I remember about. Um, uh, looking on the internet, and all of a sudden I saw Herbert Benson. I thought, oh, well, what's he doing now? And this is about 40 years later. And so I'm looking, and he has started a wellness institute at 
Harvard Medical at Harvard. Mm -hmm. it's, it's in conjunction with Harvard, and it's to study the mind-body coordination. Well, Maharishi, you know, created at the, his university the first Ph.D. program in the neurophysiology of consciousness. And that was way back when. But here is now Harvard, 40 years later, acknowledging and researching the relationship between the mind and the body and consciousness. So what I observed was that took 40 years for that to happen, to become mainstream in our culture. And... Um, the type of knowledge that I'm exploring right now is, I figure, 100 years ahead of its time. Mm. Before well, we're going to talk about that in great depth, but don't jump to it because I want to sort of proceed <laughs> systematically. So it's, it seems like the next major uh, stage in your um, progress or your journey was the exploration of Afro-Brazilian spiritual traditions. Yes, another area of controversy in our country. Yeah. <laughs> You know uh, Cynthia Lane? Uh, yes, yeah, yes, she, yes. She, I mean, She's kind of gone a similar route to yours, and I, I interviewed her quite a while back. You can find her on, on badgap.com. But anyway, go ahead. Yes, I did uh, a look at her interview, and yeah. she was on the, uh, the, the two-year courses with us. I think she was there for a year, and uh, we were you know, going from hotel to hotel together, and uh, uh, she's a wonderful person. I love her laugh. She's got a yeah, great, yeah, uh, great yeah. real liveliness <laughs> with her. Um, Let's see, I was, okay, so after my mother passed away, I, here I was in Berkeley, I had um, left the uh, womb of the Transcendent Meditation movement that had been part of my life for, it ended up being, you know, 20 years, and um, I was just kind of like kerplunk out in the environment, there I was, you know, now what to do with my life, and it was an adjustment actually for a while, because I realized that I was experiencing something that other people around me weren't experiencing. And um, I was okay with that, um, but then what was I going to do with my life? Yeah. You know? well, and that was the thing. And I had a friend, um, let's see, at that time um, I had moved over to Marin County after my mother passed away. We so uh, sold her house and I moved over to Marin. And I had a friend, um, I, was a re I was doing real estate at that time as a, uh, um, for, for a source of income for myself. And... Um, I helped these people uh, find a home in Tiburon, and I uh, lived in their home for six months while it was being remodeled. They were uh, from um, England and Hong Kong. Well, when um, they returned back to Tiburon, I moved to another place in Tiburon, and this person and I um, went, uh, had heard about some group up in Sebastopol that was doing something. And we thought, well, let's just go check it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went up there, and there was all these drums, and it was noisy, and there was a song, and uh, it was interesting, you know. I, you know, I, all these years of meditation where everything is approached with quietness and silence, <laughs> this was just the opposite. And uh, yet there was a, a level of bliss, a level of happiness that was radiating in the room that was just, you know, you could you could feel it very clearly and um, but what they were doing was even more strange they were bringing in spirit beings hmm. they were mediums and uh, I remember Maharishi had always cautioned us about that saying that you know first capture the fort and then all the territories are yours but you know be careful don't get involved in those things yeah, so as, I, Jerry, as Jerry Jarvis once said just because you're uh, well, how's it got, just because you're dead doesn't mean you're smart <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's true. That's very true. That's a good point. <laughs> but the thing is, the dead, when they leave the earth, you know, what's the consciousness that they had is kind of it's the what level. they end up with, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They still have that with them. They still have to deal with that. But anyway, so here was this group of people. It was not a large group of people, but... Um, and, and they, they were, were they were aware that they were bringing in these things. Oh they, yeah, it was it, all that was their intention. Orchestrated. I see. The the drumming was very specific drumming, and the songs were very specific. And then there was a certain moment. And were there drugs involved or no? Oh no, no drugs at all. Okay. No drugs at all. And then a certain moment where um, bingo, uh, there were about four or five people. They all in brought in these entities at the same time. How do you know they brought them in? Well, you could see it was very dramatic. They, their, their they, they changed their whole... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, some of them bent over and their face huh. expression changed. And mm. it was very obvious. Wow. And, um, and so then in their, their process was that you would go and you would uh, pick one of the mediums that you would want to consult with. But you weren't consulting with that person that you'd known just a few minutes ago. You were consulting with some spirit being that had, was coming through them. Yeah. So um, I just thought this was... Um, pretty interesting but i was very very um hesitant yeah well marshy's whole caution about that was that you know even if the information that comes through is useful and interesting it's very bad for the medium him or herself that it sort of breaks down their mind body coordination because it sort of uh relegates their own individuality to a corner so to speak and something else takes over and if you do that enough um you can really um you know hamstring your, your own evolution Compromise, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's truth to what he's saying, but it's not the whole picture. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, that was the um, that was what was in my mind when right. I was looking at all of this. Then, about a month later, there was the woman who had taught this group from Brazil, who was coming to Sebastopol, and um, so I thought, you know, so this friend of mine, her name is Carmel. So Carmel and I thought, well, this is fascinating. Let's go check it out. Let's go see what this woman's like. And uh, she was going to uh, have the people all meet out at the ocean um, on the West Coast there. And um, uh, I forget what beach we were at. In fact, it was one little, little tiny beach that most people don't know about. Mm -hmm. So we uh, go in these cars, you know, we first go to their center, and then we carpool and we go out to this place. And um, the drummers come along. They're all dressed in white. Um, and uh, we go out to the beach, and um, the, the drummers are all in a row. I think there were maybe about four or five drummers, these big, uh, tall um, drums from Brazil. And um, then by that time, I think there were about 30 or 40 people with us. And... Um, uh, and still, I didn't know what I was even looking at. You know, I did. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so uh, people were singing, and uh, she was getting ready. And um, then sh this woman, um, her name was Baby Gaho, she brought in one of her spirit beings. It was called a marinero. Okay, I don't know what a marinero is. You know, it's like, I don't know. And. Um, but um, she changed, her personality changed, and he uh, seemed very uh, jovial and very um, happy. And um, then what happened was the people that had been part of that, that uh, center, they all walked, went up one by one to the marinero. He touched them on the forehead, and instantaneously they incorporated these beings. And, 
and it's true they were just all like this one was over here and that one was moving over there and that one was doing something over there so in other words to the objective observer you saw a transformation in the in the sort of appearance of the person and their behavior and stuff that's what you mean when you say incorporated the beings yes exactly yeah. that yeah. was their language they called that uh, to bring in those spirit beings they use the word incorporate yeah so, so their whole their expression language. changes and their body posture and all yeah. that stuff yeah so Carmel and I are standing there and we're going well why don't we go stand in line let's go see what happens uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, so uh, you know we're in line there and we're waiting and you know the person before us is you know doing something and that one goes off in that direction and that one goes off in that direction and then I'm getting more and more nervous because I'm getting closer to the fret right yeah so then um, so then I go up there you know and and um, I'm very nervous and uh, the the lady or I guess her modernero taps me on my uh, forehead and I fall back well Carmel said I went through the air six feet and I knew that I had gone through the air, but certainly not six feet. You're on the sand, I guess. It's exactly. Yeah. And when I land on the sand, I just it, this explosion of white light inside of me, and I'm just filled with bliss, and I just start laughing and laughing and laughing. Hmm. And it's like that's my joy, but there's also something else there at the same time. So I kind of get up, and I find my body kind of moving here and there and so on and so on. So that's my first exposure. You know, I kind of like took that leap of faith. I kind of uh, certainly didn't expect that experience, and yet it was something. It was definitely a very uh, distinguished experience. It just wore off after a while. No, she. Uh, it's very. They're. Um, they create a what they call a sacred circle first, mm-hmm. and then um, there's a certain period of time where the mediums are mediums. And then there's this, and, and all the t- all during this time, there's different songs and the drumming that's going on, because the it turns out the drummers play a major role and the singers play a major role in this whole phenomenon. And then there's a point where um, you say goodbye to the spirit beings, and so there's songs that are sung to say goodbye, and the mediums all kind of, you know, that's the point where the spirit beings are no uh, are sort of get ready to leave, mm-hmm. and the mediums come back toward their bodies. And then there's a, a song where they're actually to go, and then b- bingo, it all just sort of happens like that. So that's that's the process. I see. And uh, somewhere along the line, I don't know, I came out of it, and I don't know, <laughs> it was sort of new territory to me, so it was kind of a fuzzy experience. You know, I, years later, I, ca- I came to know what it was all about, but certainly, you know, not at that point. Mm-hmm. And then a month later, she had a group go down to Brazil, so I went with that group, and that was my first experience, going down to Brazil. So are you going to tell me that you ended up taking ayahuasca, or no? No, uh, no, 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 no. Okay, good. But, but it is interesting, that tradition down there, there is a, a segment of it mm-hmm. that, that does do all of that, and yet they still do the same, uh, the drumming and the same songs and stuff, but they use the ayahuasca to get them connected. Yeah, a lot of people are interested in that these days, and I, I have one friend, at least, um, who did it and really had a bad trip I mean you mm. know really, really got kind of blown away mm. and um, is perhaps still getting integrated from that but so in any case you went down so what was your involvement when you went to Brazil what, what was the nature of that um, at that time uh, this woman was married to this guy and they had a what they call a forest academy on 44 hectares and I can't remember what how that connects to acres okay. but but a, you know sizable place and um, 
really be quite beautiful place. Uh, we slept outdoors. Uh, it's very nature-oriented. Um, they had a big, huge uh, circle with a, a large um, pit, uh, open fire pit in the center. And all of our training took out uh, took place outdoors around that uh, 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 fire area. And uh, then next to those fire areas, they had these small buildings. They were kind of octagonal. They called them uh, honcos, uh, R-O-N-C-O. In Brazil, they pronounce the R as an H. And those buildings, um, I was told at the time, were dedicated to different orishas. Now, I didn't know what an orisha was, but uh, what would happen is during some of our training, we would go into those small buildings and uh, do our training within that little area. So between the little area and the large uh, open circle, we would do our training. And the first night that I was there and fell asleep, um, I saw this um, uh, Indian chief. Um, Native American Indian? Or I thought it was Brazilian. Brazilian yeah, because okay. I'm in Brazil, right? You know, right. It's, you know, I'm taking their tradition. I, I didn't know who it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, all night long, I just, in my mind's eye, and even um, in the external environment, I kept seeing this chief. So in their tradition, they teach you to connect with seven lines of beings. They call them a lineages. And the first one is called a caboclo, which is supposed to be your main spirit guide. So I figured, okay, this is going to be my caboclo. And that's all I knew about that. And then um, in their tradition, they don't connect you directly to the uh, spirit being, but they connect you to what are called the orishas first, mm -hmm. so that you're introduced to the spirit being in terms of the spirit being's orisha. So it's, it's a very sophisticated um, a tradition. It's as sophisticated as the Vedas are sophisticated. Huh. But... You don't really hear about it, especially in our country, or if you do hear about it, you kind of hear about the sort of the, the bad aspects of it, so to speak, you know, or the lower range aspects of it. So let me catch up on a couple of things here. Um, orishas are like sort of like the attendants of this bigger being. Is that what they are? Like, no, they're not, like, be they're not beings themselves at all. They oh. are the energetic uh, formations of the universe. Hmm. So they had... Um, in their tradition, which originally came from Africa, they had in their tradition, um, and I really give my credit to Maharishi for, um, I started to, you know, as I wound my way into this tradition to sort of explore what it was really about, because of my training with transcendental meditation, because of my training with consciousness, I was always looking for those aspects in their tradition. Whereas a lot of people that I was with, they had their other reasons for becoming involved in that tradition. But I was able to find that in their tradition that they had seers thousands of years ago who had the ability to look into the universe and could see that the universe was made up of energetic formations. They had that quality of perception that they, and they were able to come up with over 2,000 different qualities. Hmm. So that, and that was, to me was like a real insight because I don't have that kind of perception. You know, even though all the training I had with consciousness didn't train me to look into the universe and see the qualities of the universe itself. Although so Marcia always used to talk about the impulses of intelligence and the laws yes. of nature and all that. So is that what you think he was talking about, the same thing as this? Uh, 
I would, yeah, I would say yes, exactly. In fact, you're the yeah. first person that's made that connection, and, and I think that's a, a good observation that you're well, making. Well, you certainly thought of that connection, haven't you? I mean, he well, talked about that all the time, and that, that, you know, that sort of creative intelligence has these organizing principles that sort of each are specifically responsible for, you know, one particular manifestation or one particular aspect of, exactly. of, of, of the universe. Yeah, exactly. But you said it so you said it so succinctly, you know. Uh-huh. And then you know now all of a sudden we're dialoguing, and there's a you know uh, an expression of that. The the one thing that Maharishi didn't say though was, okay, he would talk about qualities of, and he would talk about them in terms of Western language. Yeah. But he would never. We never had techniques of how to see those qualities in and of themselves. Mm. So that's what this tradition is all about. So they had, okay, over 2,000, I think 2,416 qualities, something like that, some number, that they had seers that were capable of perceiving that. Mm -hmm. And then what they did was they um, grouped those qualities into um, smaller qualities, um, you know, and kept grouping them down. And then they finally were able to group them, all of those qualities, into four qualities that are found on Earth. Um, or that we know about the elements, earth, fire, water, and air. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to take all of those qualities that they called Arishas, that's the name they gave for it, that's what Arishas means, and they were able to um, bring them down to this very simple um, structure of four. And today, worldwide, what you see is that people are working with about 16 Arishas. And it's interesting because going back to that conversation about how Maharishi said the density of the world, you know, wasn't allowing people to levitate. Well, I perceive in this tradition the same phenomena is happening. Here's all these qualities, and there were people that could see all of that at one time. But right now, because of the condition of the world, they can only see 16 of them or maybe, you know, 28 of them. But that's Mm -hmm. about as many as they can uh, perceive and work with. It sounds like from what you're saying, in fact, I was reminded of Hagelin again while we were talking because, you know, he, he gives these charts where you take all the different diverse aspects of nature and boil them down to more and more fundamental laws of nature, and then you end up with the four forces, you know, gravity, uh, weak, uh, the weak force, uh, electromagnetism, and I forget what the fourth one is, and then physicists are trying to, you know, take those and boil them down even more fundamentally and, you know, to a unified field. And what it sounds like you're saying is that... Um, that given the nature of collective consciousness, people can see, you know, a basic four or a basic 16, but that the subtlety isn't there to see the fine fabric details of all the, you know, other permutations and and combinations that might be possible. You just have to sort of get it down to, sort of like, you know, certain music is very crude and uh, you'll hear a song that just sort of bangs away on two or three or four different notes over and over again, and that's a song. But then you you listen to Mozart or Beethoven or something, and it's so intricate and there's so much subtlety and variety, you know, basically composed out of the same fundamental notes, same, same scale, but there's so much more richness to it. Yeah, it's exa- you know, and it's so much. Um, there's a green thing that just l- went on my corner. Is there any change in our? Um, uh, it it's, it's just a little bug. Uh, okay. Won't bite. I don't okay. know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, um, it's really fun speaking with you because um, you you know you come in from a different direction and and it's saying the same thing. Although I think those four forces that he's talking about are different than the four elements. Okay. It, um, so it would be interesting to have a conversation with somebody 
of 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 his uh, understanding yeah. a scientist to uh, you know to explore you know what all that is about he's done it actually he's written papers and given talks about trying to correlate those principles of physics with the, the sort of the the five elements or whatever number of elements that that the sort of more ancient traditions understood but that that's sort of tangential to this conversation but it's there to be uh, looked at well or we could see down the road uh, the work that I'm doing right now um, I would love to have people like him who have that scientific mind go on these journeys that Hiawatha offers and see what ha it happens, but we'll get into that down the road. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so that's, um, so that's where, uh, so what it is, okay, so you've got these energetic forces of the universe, mm -hmm. and in their tradition, it's really quite beautiful. And when you look at it from the outside, you don't have an understanding, except you either like it or you think it's too far-fetched. But what happens is they look at the human body as being a vessel. A vessel? And a vessel. Okay. And they train their people to see the emptiness of the vessel. So, you know, Maharishi taught us through meditation in a different way. We sit and close our eyes. They don't do that. Your eyes are open and your whole body is a vessel. Um, you know, like a, uh, they, they have a word called cortina. It's like a, um, uh, like a vase. So your body is like a vase and inside it's empty. So in their training, they teach you how to experience that emptiness. And then, uh, again, it goes back to these seers. When they saw all of these qualities out in the universe, they had to figure out how to make the connection between those qualities with the people living you know, in their villages and how to connect the people to, the, to that because they saw it as something that was the original state of the human is that they were originally at some point connected to that and then they lost that connection. So what they did was they understood those energetic forces as having vibration. So then on Earth, they created a phenomena of vibration and that became the drumming. I see. And then they learned how to align certain vibrations with the actual vibrations of those particular orishas in the universe, those energetic forces in the universe. And that when they would drum in a certain way, what would happen is that it would like call forth that energetic force. That energetic force would enliven in the environment in front of them. And then they would teach the people how to bring it within them because their understanding is that that's what you are anyway. Hmm. In other words, with Maharishi, we are consciousness. So his technique was to teach us how to experience consciousness inside. We went through the mind. Um, but in their case, you have this open vessel that's empty, and so you allow these forces of the universe to come forward because you are those forces. You are that. And... What they and um, and it's really quite a developed uh, science. What they were able to observe, uh, I don't know where it happened in their tradition, but it's just always been there, is that at the moment of conception, that there's a certain vibration of the universe that's predominant around that moment. So that they say that that's your orisha, and you come in with that force, you carry that force with you, and it's a force of protection. So here's all of the universe, and yet you're, you know, you're going to be born in this little body, and you need a protection so that when you enter into the environment of the earth and all that is here, that you don't lose that connection with who you are. 
So, um, so then that's, and then they have people that are there with you when you're born that whisper into your ear to enliven that, that protection that you have, to enliven that force so that it, it's there with you from birth. Well, even so, in their traditions, they have some people that have that knowledge and some people that don't have that knowledge. So then you go to, say, for instance, Brazil, and they have these tejeros, which means temple, and you go and you learn how to reconnect with your own Orisha. So that's one of the processes. In fact, when it came first from Africa to Brazil, it came uh, as uh, a tradition called Condomble, came into Bahia. And um, then it, um, this is sort of an interesting sort of side point, but then it be began to be integrated into the uh, Brazilian tradition, which at that time was native uh, people who had their own way of connecting to the spirit realms. So then uh, what happened is another tradition came forth called the Umbanda. And the Umbanda would take the Orisha tradition, but then would take the native uh, indigenous tradition of their, of, their, of their country and teach people how to connect with their spirit guides. Mm -hmm. So Umbanda is really kind of a twofold process. One is it teaches you about your own Orisha, what your own energetic force that you carry within you. And then the other component is if you want to be a medium, we'll teach you how to connect with the spirit beings. But they don't teach you directly how to connect. This is sort of why I zigzagged away from this uh, initial point was they don't teach you initially how to connect to your spirit being. They teach you how to connect to the, the Orisha of your spirit being. So it's like they really take you out in a broad way. Hmm. It, it's sort of like an, their, their, their process of creating unboundedness for you, of, of creating expandedness of awareness for you. So you're experiencing the Orisha of the entity, so you're not experiencing the entity's personal life, but you're experiencing the Orisha first. So it's like the Orisha is coming forward to give you the protection, so that as you develop as a medium, there's a protection around you as the medium for when that connection eventually gets made. So it's a really interesting process. Yeah. There's a couple of things in what you just said that reminded me of the Vedic perspective on it. I mean, one is you said that these things really aren't outside of you anyway. They're really all within you. And, of course, in the Vedic perspective, it's said that all the, you know, the, the laws of nature are contained within consciousness, and, and you are that consciousness. And then there's that saying that the, the riches seek out him who is awake. Uh, you know, so that if, if a proper level of awakeness or awareness or, re or realization is there, then these impulses of intelligence, riches of the, which are, you know, verses of the Veda or impulses of intelligence that comprise the Veda, uh, seek you out. And I don't claim to understand 100% what that actually means or what the implications of it are, but it sounds like that's what you're talking about, and you can probably elaborate on it more. Well, I think uh, what you're, um, the Orishas would, it's interesting because we have to qualify, do they mean by Orishas that's separate from the impulses of nature, are the Orishas intelligences with their own personality that are representing that, or are they the impulses themselves? So how is it that... Uh, or, or do the impulses of nature have their own personalities, really? You well, know, is, is everything really animate and personalized, the sun, the moon, everything? 
Well, see, in this tradition, that is that way. So they have the Arishas, and that's exactly what those, that, those seers that they had perceived was that it wasn't just like our science people say it's an you know it's like you know something you can look at through a telescope but when they um, saw those uh, forces of the universe they all they, there's two things they said about it they had personality and they had intelligence mm -hmm. and they had the self-referral they were aware of themselves right. as who they were so even though they were the impulses of the universe itself they also had that separation so it's it's interesting. It it is like um, how how Maharishi has uh, given it out, and yet there's another tradition that needs to now step forward and be acknowledged for its greatness as well. Oh yeah, um, I mean I'm I'm not sort of mentioning the Vedic thing just to to kind of in any way <clears throat> give credence to the this tradition you're talking about. I'm just sort of saying it's interesting that there are these similarities, you know, between both traditions. And and in the Vedic tradition, very much, you know, I mean, su the sun is Surya. It's considered to be a being, you yeah. know, and the earth is Bhumi, and the moon is, I forget what. And yeah, know, yeah. E each one has, it's, it's not considered to be a hunk of rock or, a, a, you know, a fusion reaction. It's considered to be a, a conscious entity, which only superficially is rock or fusion reaction or whatever. But there's, it's really just this massive intelligence that has that sort of a body yeah and and i wasn't saying it in, in reference to you i was saying it in reference to my observation of how people look at this afro-brazilian tradition especially in our country and you know most people is like you know i don't even want to go there you know they won't even have a conversation about it mm -hmm. but but in, in an environment like this with this interview you know you've opened the door to um really bring forth the uh, the depth of that tradition and and uh and we were fortunate to, I think, really receive the depth of the Vedic tradition from Maharishi. So um, we're these lucky, ordinary people. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's continue on with your story. So you, you, you're kind of telling us about the – well, I wanted to throw in one other question. Um, you mentioned that when you first went there to South America and you were you know, experiencing this being all night long um, – was it from, was it kind of customary for you to maintain awareness during sleep, which was one of the characteristics of, of awakened consciousness that Maharishi always used as a criterion? Well, you know that's <laughs> that's a whole other discussion, isn't it? Uh -huh. um, that happened there very clearly. Um, I have always found a couple of hours during sleep mm -hmm. to still be a couple of hours where I don't have awareness. So that's always kind of been there with me through the years. I don't know how it is with you, but uh, Maharishi always said that that was the you know the ultimate just you know sort of uh, gateway for. Uh, it was the what, acid test, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. If you're not, him, he always insisted that if you're not maintaining pure awareness during sleep, you know, 24/7 or throughout the night, then you're not really established. And uh, but very seldom do you hear anybody talk about that kind of experience, you know. Most people, you know, who are appear to be very much awakened are out like a light when they sleep. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah. In my own in my own case a lot of times I'll, you know, I mean, I'm generally out like a light, but sometimes something will wake me up and and in the process of waking up, I'll kind of realize that I wasn't asleep, you know, even though I may have been snoring or something. Yeah. <laughs> but but you don't realize it until you wake up and there's some faculties with which to realize it. And actually, what you're saying right there is the whole process when people first start meditating, how they come to know consciousness. I remember my very first moment of knowing consciousness was like, 
oh, I just had an experience. That's consciousness. And I was experiencing it from the moment before, but I didn't call it that then. Yeah, yeah. In fact, most people say that when they really f have a profound awakening. They say, wait a minute, this has always been the case. I just right. never quite, quite saw it this way. I never quite noticed what was right before my eyes. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, when I had that experience of that being, um, then the rest of the time that I was there, the, there, um, there, they had told me who his Orisha was, which was called is called Shango, mm -hmm. and Shango is a force of fire, and it's a it's that quality of fire when it starts to crystallize. It's like the volcano, and then it's all the fire starts to crystallize. So that's the element of this Orisha of this kaboklo this main spirit guide so on that particular trip that's what i learned about hmm. and they had me work with that orisha which of course the spirit guide was right there at that moment but i wasn't working with the spirit guide i was working with the orisha that orisha force was it, it's obviously not my force it was so intense so difficult for me to bring it in because it was just so powerful and I had never known anything like that before. It was just really like, oh my God. <laughs> but you know, I was game for all this. You know, I was, you know, it was fun, exciting. But um, that was my first introduction to the Orishas, is that they are very powerful forces. Um, and it's good that you have a tradition that gradually teaches you about the different ones and you gradually learn how the different ones feel and how to work with them and all of that. Are there, are there casualties sometimes when people circumvent that tradition and just try to go for the fast track? Well, you know, it's interesting. Down there, um, this is one thing that I really like about their tradition that I didn't notice as much as with the Transcendental Meditation Program. Uh, with us being teachers, we were always, you know, give me more and more meditation, give me more and more meditation. We just, we just loved the experience of meditating as much as we could. And their tradition... Uh, for instance, like when you're a medium and you go to this big teheru, you only go once a week. So you're only a medium once a week. And then the, the rest of the time you're just living your regular life, which is this huge integration process. Mm. And so um, I think in their tradition, they actually have more integration than um, the Vedic tradition, or at least the Vedic tradition, that, the way in which we were introduced to it. Uh -huh. And I think even so, in a lot of meditation processes in our country, uh, a lot of different techniques, people kind of, you know, want more and more of it. And there, are, there is some imbalances that you see from time to time. But this is very, very balanced. Um, um, yeah, I, I would say that that's one thing that I really kind of, you know, I always wanted more of it, but I'd have to wait, you know, because they weren't in a rush to give it to me, right. the knowledge, you know. And... Um, in the process, there was the integration that took place in a very nice way. So this guy who came through that first night, that was, that was whom you call Hiawatha? Well, what happened was I had no idea during that time. I just mm. thought, you know, okay, this is some Brazilian Indian, <laughs> you know. And then I came back to Tiburon after the course and uh, just living my life. You know, I'd go up to Sebastopol uh, once a week. And then one day I just felt like I've got to go to the library and read about the Native Americans. I was like, huh? <laughs> I didn't even know how to talk to the spirit realm. It was just sort of like, that was my own thought, I thought. But it was like this feeling in my heart. I just got to do it. I was compelled. 
So I went to the Tiburon Library uh, and um, looked at their books on Native American and wasn't drawn to any of them. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. I don't know, you know, I just blah, blah. And then I went over to the children's section and I just went over to where the Native American Indians were and I just felt drawn to three books. I just picked them up just quick, just like that. And uh, walked out of the library and uh, took them home. And I opened up the first book, first of three books, and I went, oh my God, that's who it is. Huh. And it was Hiawatha. It was a book about Hiawatha. So, so he, was a, he was a literal figure. He wasn't just a Longfellow poem, poetic uh, character. He was... Uh... Right. That began my journey of like, who is this character, you know? But it was interesting because it was like years later I realized he was the one that pulled me to the library. Mm. And, you know, honed in on where was that book that would talk about him, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, yeah, he is. He's, um, he is um, of the uh, Iroquois tradition. Uh, the Iroquois people, they call themselves the Haudenosaunee people. Uh, today we find them in our country in upper state New York. Um, and R- he Running w- casinos probably. Uh, there, <laughs> there are some that are doing that, and there's that whole thing among the, within their own culture, whether that's right. a good thing or not, or whether it's payback time or whatever, you know. <laughs> but um, it, it's interesting. He is a very interesting um, character in history. He uh, was at a time where his people were at war with one another and all killing one another. And there were five main um, tribes, or they call them nations that were um, literally uh, out to destroy one another and, and they had built up such a culture that if you killed someone that was an honor hmm. and uh, that was a, a glory to be had um, and uh, Hiawatha at that time was a chief and he was a chief who spoke of peace but the people did not listen you know they, they didn't they weren't interested in what he had to say and the story goes that um, there was born among their people a man that they refer to as the peacemaker. They don't like to say his name uh, verbally, so they call him the peacemaker because they consider him very uh, sacred to their tradition, and so they keep that held close to their heart, sort of like we would with the mantras. The mantras you don't talk about them, and um, but he was uh, an extraordinary individual in that he was born of a virgin birth. And he was uh, born um, of a mother with a grandmother, and they went and lived in the forest until he was ready to come forth and bring his mission of peace. So uh, what happened was when he came forward um, and started to talk about peace, he had a stutter. So Hiawatha became his spokesperson. Mm -hmm. And the two of them went and began to teach peace to their people and were able to stop war were able to um, create a situation where they uh, created a big, huge hole in the ground, and they put all of their weapons, everybody put all their weapons into the earth and buried it up and planted a tree, a tree of peace. But more than that, they were able to create a governing structure of how they could live with one another uh, with a good mind, with um, uh, respect toward one another, um, and a good sense of power, to use power in the right way. Well, they created a governing structure that, interestingly enough, and I didn't know about this, but I think if I'd been raised on the East Coast, I might have known about it. Um, w- when our, quote, founding fathers came from over in England and 
tried to create, a, at some point, wanted to create a constitution. They didn't go to the English constitution because that's what they were running away from. They interfaced with the Iroquois people that lived on the East Coast and learned of their ways. Mm. And so many of their principles from this, they call it the Iroquois Confederacy, many of these principles of the Iroquois Confederacy, of which Hiawatha was one of those makers, were incorporated into our Constitution, like uh, the balances of power with the, uh, the government, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, voting. Uh, and actually, in the Iroquois tradition, originally, everybody had to agree. It wasn't majority votes. Mm. But our, quote, founding fathers did it as majority votes. So a lot of the um, concepts that created our U.S. Constitution were actually um, borrowed uh, from the uh, English people's interaction with the Iroquois people. Hmm. So that's the, um, they say that it's the first written um, governing structure on our land hmm. was the Iroquois Confederacy. Okay. Good. So uh, that's interesting. And, no, it really is. I'm not, um, so so this, this fellow, um, well, I'm not sure how to proceed here. We, you, you talk about Hiawatha and Vovo Anamalia, and you you go into, and we're going to get into more stuff like about exploring the universe and so on. Um, but should we jump to that, or do you want to sort of unfold it based upon your personal sort of journey of of how um, how you discovered all these things, how they unfolded for you? Should introduce a little bit with Vovo because um, that gives rise to the journeys into the universe, the, the work that I do right now. Um, as I mentioned, when they teach you how to be a medium uh, in the a- Afro-Brazilian tradition, they uh, teach you how to connect with these different seven lineages. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that one that I had connected with way back in California on the beach was a Maranero. And that's a lineage uh, that works with people at the water and works with people's emotions. So that it's, a, it's a particular um, spirit being that, that works just with people's emotions. And, and just at the water, which is why he right. came in, because you were at the beach. Right, right, okay. right. And then, um, and so, um, th- it, I, even though I had had that experience of Hiawatha, and I was having the training of how to connect through his Orisha, um, they also had this other uh, line called preta velhas or preto velhas, which means old blacks in Portuguese. Old Pret- blacks? Old blacks. O-L-D. And, uh, yeah, O-L-D, okay. uh, which is the word um, value. Um, uh-huh. I'm not, I don't speak Portuguese properly, so I'm, uh, you know, I, I apologize for that. Um, velo is masculine, vela is feminine, preta velha. So anyway, that was actually the first uh, group of beings that they introduced us to, to connect with them as the spirit beings. And so we had the training on how to connect with these pretavelias. And the pretavelias, the reason why they have the name Old Blacks was that when they were last on earth, they were of the black race, and they had a huge amount of suffering and um, difficulties and they gained their wisdom through all their suffering. Are we talking about slavery or, or something? Yes, oh, slavery okay. and, and the whole nine yards, whatever it was, uh-huh. in that range of time. So you're saying a lot of the, the slaves now exist as um, these sort of spirit beings who, have, who became very wise through that uh, ordeal. 
Right. What happened is during the slave trade, their people, came, many of their people were brought to the New World, right. some to Brazil, some to Cuba, some to America, you know, all the, uh, you know, that whole island structure. Mm -hmm. And they were brought over during the slave trade. And then, and then they established their uh, tradition, Condomble, at least in Brazil, they established it there as Condomble. And then also as they started to integrate into the um, synchronization with the um, native uh, tradition, then um, they started to learn how to the, their, their people that had been brought over to the, this new world uh, learned how to connect with their ancestors through um, the native tr traditions that were existed in Brazil. Mm -hmm. So that's what started this line of uh, Pretavelias, because they were all black. Right. And that's what they called them, the Pretavelias. Mm -hmm. So that's a very ancient tradition in Brazil. Um, interestingly enough, that tradition, the Afro-Brazilian tradition that came over as Condomble and then became Umbanda, also syncretized with the uh, Roman Catholic Church, because during that time, um, the Catholic Church was a big part of uh, Brazil. And these days, it's about 85% of Brazil. So they've got a whole other thing where they uh, have taken all the saints in the Catholic tradition and connected them to different Orishas, saying that they have different qualities of these different Orishas. But anyway, that's sort of a side thing. So here I was, um, I think that first time, uh, learning how to connect with the Pretavelia. And my first ex and my first experience with that. And the Pretavelia is the old blacks. Right. 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 Okay. Good. Just for, so they were right. teaching me how to connect with a, my Pretavelia. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Specific one that would be sort of... For me. Th ...that you would be connected with. Okay. Right, right, right. And this is sort of a description of my medium process. Mm -hmm. They had us sitting down on these little stumps that were on that big open circle that I was telling you about, mm -hmm. and there was the music playing and the drums playing, and there were certain songs, and, and by that time I had learned that there were certain songs that when a certain song came, that's when that being was supposed to come in. So I was waiting for that moment, you know, <laughs> and... All of a sudden, my mouth started to do these funny things, and it wasn't me doing that. Hmm. You know, and it's like, you know, it's like, wait a minute, what's going on? For those listening in, just the audio, her, she's, you know, <laughs> taking her lips and stretching them in different directions, to, and, and the mouth was going into various grimaces on its own. On its own, yes. Without me using my hands. Mm -hmm. So then that's when I realized, okay, there's a being somewhere around me that's going to be the being I'm working with, and, and uh, they're trying to figure out how it all works, because they're having to figure it out also. Mm. So we usually just think of it just being from our side, but it's yeah. like a, a two-way street. Uh -huh. so, so that was the beginning. And then my, my experiences as being a medium were more like feeling like a puppet. Mm -hmm. So I was still here in my body, still Andre, and you know I was feeling different parts of my body moving. So that was the beginning, really, of what it felt like to be a medium. Mm -hmm. And um, then, you know, and I went down, you know, every year for 12 years, and I learned all these different seven lines of beings and uh, how to bring them in and how to work with them and got really um, comfortable with the whole process. I would have to say, in terms of the actual internal experience, and all the course was taught in Portuguese, so I missed a whole lot of knowledge because I don't speak Portuguese. <laughs> So I would just be able to observe, you know. But my experience, going back to what Maharishi always said, you know, be careful. 
-hmm. was I don't lose awareness because I developed a quality of consciousness that I can't lose awareness anymore. Right. But what I experience for myself is it's like I'm in a, another room. It's like I go to another room and, and I'm still present here, but it's like I'm in the other room and it's like I'm hearing what's going on here from a distance. Mm -hmm. So it's like I'm out here beyond my body, but if I need to come back into the body, I can, but I'm observing what's happening from afar. Right. Whereas I think maybe there are some mediums that do lose awareness. Mm. You know, um, I don't think so much, I don't know whether the group I was with, whether that was the case or not. I don't know. Because I wasn't, you know, those kind of questions at that time to really know. So it's always been a little bit of a question on my side, you know. Yeah. There is that verse in the Yoga Sutras, which is... Uh when invited by the celestial beings, that invitation should not be accepted, nor should it cause vanity, because it involves possibility of undesirable consequences. Did you, did you ever contemplate that verse in, in light yeah. of what you were doing? And and second, yes. part of that, second part of that question is, I mean, have you ever noticed any deleterious after effects from doing this? Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, um, here's what I observed, and it wasn't in my personal experience. Mm -hmm. But what I observed... Uh, because you work, they taught us how to work with seven lines of beings, and each line had a certain reason. Like the Pretavelias help people with their difficulties. Um, there's another line called Boyadero that helps to bring unity to a group of uh, people that are having difficulty getting along together. Um, and then the Maranero that works with people's um, uh, emotions. Then there's another line called the Alegbara or the Eshus or the Pompagiras which work with all the dark forces that people carry inside themselves, all the addictions, the afflictions, uh, people's uh, propensity to drugs, to alcohol. So it's a, it's a um, they themselves are a dark force. And when you incorporate them, their whole purpose is, number one, to protect you from the dark forces, and then secondarily, anybody who comes in front of them, they will help that person with their dark forces. So that's a very um, touchy line of beings to be working with. But I found that that, the, at least the groups, I was with two groups in Brazil. Um, they had the full integrity of understanding all of those issues and had the impeccability to teach it in a right way. Mm. However, what I found was, in one case, the head of that organization allowed himself in personal life to veer into those dark forces hmm. out of exploration but also fascination and it involved other people and so did it sort of ruin his life in some ways and, and the lives of those whom he influenced I would say it ruined it, you, I wouldn't use the word ruin right, but, right. It, but it, um, it, it caused deep suffering in the lives of those he impacted in that way yeah you know, but it's no different than what I observe in even the guru phenomena. Sure. Yeah. So it's the same. It's the same stepping off. Try to find one who hasn't screwed up in some way. It's a little, little bit hard. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that's that. But but it does exist down there. Yeah. And it and it exists when you work with that particular line. So and do you feel like it was something that um, he knew he was 
getting into he knew he knew what the consequences would be but he did it as a self-sacrifice in order to help people with their dark forces or was it more like oh, he, no. got, he got lost in the process yeah he got lost in the process yeah he, he, and he got fascinated with the um you know the phenomena of being able to take advantage of people yeah well it's just like the patanjali it. quote that i just said you know yeah yeah um and um and in your but, own case but, but you, it's you just felt... like he was able to step back from that and then the rest of his teaching is was perfectly it was okay fine. yeah sure yeah. it was just a compartment got corrupted yeah and, and in your own case you're saying that you were come somehow spared from that by having first established consciousness so solidly I think so i think yeah. so and you know it was interesting uh when mo when i would he, uh, this first group they had a temple in a very poor area of brazil called flavela and um uh, they would have like about 300 people a week come to this um, teheru to get, you know, advice, help, healing, everything. And there would be 30 mediums in the uh, this central area. And there would be about seven drums. There would be all the music. And then all the mediums would just incorporate at the same time. And it was like this a massive white light just exploding in the room. It was pretty phenomenal. Uh, and all the people that would come, you know, they would be little kids, they would be grandparents, the whole family would come. And they all knew the songs, it was very celebratory, everything like that. And then they, and then what would happen after the mediums came in, and, and I mean the, be, the beings came in, then they would open up these little um, gates that where all the uh, public were sitting, these people. And then they would come in and they would choose which, which uh, medium to go up to, to, uh, you know, help. And what I, because they would have me uh, standing next to one of the mediums to observe the process that was part of the training. And what I would observe was they would come up with all their problems. You know, they were so poor they couldn't go to a doctor. So they relied 100% on these mediums mm. to take care of their lives, their whole family's lives. And it worked. And I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. You know, you know that they come and they've got this problem here and that problem there. And, uh, they uh, they would be uh, taken care of, you know, and the yeah. little kids would come in and the grandparents would come in and they'd have money problems, they'd have uh, whatever, whatever. So I thought that when I was going to be working with spirit beings, that that's what I would be doing. They would come, you know, and, and the Bobo Amaya and Hiawatha would be helping people with their difficulties in life. Well, for me, it started to, it started out that way, but then it started to move in another direction. And it's and that's where it's gone now, and I take that to be a lot of my preparation with all those years of meditating. That somehow I was destined to work with these beings, and even though I didn't know that at that time, or it had been you know the window shade was pulled down over me during all of that, was that that was a, a you know yes I did accomplish this, and I you know those people started TM and all of that happened. And I learned for myself, but I think it was really was a preparation because their work is so extraordinary that I'm not sure if it would have happened if I hadn't had all of that development of consciousness and, and the training that Maharishi gave us. So you're saying their work now through you is so extraordinary? I think it is, yeah. And so what is it exactly that, that, that you do that's so extraordinary? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, what I observe with Vovo and Amalia is that she teaches people about the Orishas where they are out in the universe. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, I, and I can't say if this is really true or not because I, I don't speak the Portuguese. But when I would go to the Condomble temples in Bahia 
And when I would listen to the people talk, because that's just pure Orisha. And when the Orishas come in, they don't speak. They just come in with their force. And they, and they enter into the body of the individual. And then there's all this drumming and music. And, and the person's dancing around in the circle area. And the blessings from that Orisha are going out into the room. Um, what I have heard, and I don't know how much of this is true or not, some of the, the Teherus look upon those beings as their spirit guides. And so I'm wondering if they're working with spirit guides or if they're working with the actual Orishas. And the difference between the two again is? Well, a spirit guide is like a, 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 a being. Entity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like um, it's either um, a being that had been, was on earth and now is, you know, being an ancestor mm-hmm. or, um, you know, coming down from a celestial realm and, you know, being a, a, you know, working through the medium. Whereas an Orisha is more of an inanimate force of nature. Exactly, of I the see. universe. Okay. Exactly. Which so, still might be animate, but not in a way that is as easy for us to conceptualize. Well, it is animate because it has intelligence and personality. Right, So right. when it comes forward, it, it is um, filled with that. But it's just so dissimilar from what we ordinarily consider to be any sort of personality or, or you know, individuated soul that it's kind of almost in its own classification. Exactly. It, it hasn't had, um, it hasn't lived in the heavens, it hasn't lived in... Um, you know, in the celestial realms, it hasn't lived on Earth. It hasn't lived in, you know, Orion or the Pleiades or any of that. It's right. just the force of nature. I yeah. mean, the, you know, forces of the universe itself. Okay. Good. So, 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 yeah, I was, so we were talking about, like, what you're doing with this. And, yeah. And, you know, how it's different by virtue of your whole background with, you know, establishing consciousness and all that stuff. Well, first of all, I don't really, I mean, that, the tradition of how they train you to bring in the Orishas mm-hmm. uh, wasn't primary to what I was down in Brazil for. It was secondary. Mm-hmm. But when you go to the Condomble houses like in Bahia, it's primary. Mm-hmm. And you go and you stay there for like 30 days in seclusion, and you're connected with your Orisha. And you have to learn Yoruba. You have to learn all kinds of stuff. You know, it's just, it's like, it's like learning the Vedas, you know, it's a huge, uh, it's a seven-year process. So I never did any of that. So from my side, I don't claim to know the Orishas, but Volvo Anamalia does. And so I just and, let it. And, and Volvo Anamalia is like Hiawatha, one, a, a being that you are she's very much Pachibelia. involved with. She's the Oh, she, she's the old black. Right? Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, good, good, good. Okay. <laughs> Get my orientation here. Right, right. <laughs> so, but she does. That's her tradition. Those are her people. Yeah. So I just kind of like, well, whatever she wants to teach, let her teach. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm pretty amazed that, um, you know, and she doesn't have the condition that they have in Brazil. She doesn't have the trained drummers. She doesn't have people that know the songs. So in her own way, she is actually teaching people how to connect to those universal forces and it happens like in the first one or two or th- three visits that the people are with her. It happens quickly. It's not yeah. like a seven-year process. And so when you say they're w- with her, what you really mean is they're with her by virtue of you. So right. I, right. I, I, uh, they they through come you. to a workshop. I incorporate her, mm-hmm. and the workshop goes on for like two or three hours. Mm-hmm. And during that period of time, she teaches them about the Orishas. And what experience do the people actually have when during these two or three hours? They connect with the Orishas. 
they and, connect with these forces. And how do they? How do you know? And how do they know that they connect? What's the, what's the experience of connecting? It's a personal experience, first of all, and it's something, and by and large, something that's new to most people, especially here in the United States, you know. Um, and then I'm always listening to the, you know, tapes afterwards to, you know, really hear what went on and stuff. And she's always asking people about their experiences and stuff like that. But uh, there's one gentleman here, for instance, a young guy. I live in Mount Shasta, California now. Young guy. He's 26 years old. He started coming to the sessions that I was doing with Hiawatha and Vovo. His first experience when she was working with the Orishas with him, and she asked him about his experiences afterwards. He said, well, I was out there in the universe, and I moved our galaxy. <laughs> this, you know, this is a 26-year-old kid. Yeah. I mean, you know, to me, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> well, that was his experience. I'm a little skeptical as to whether he actually moved the galaxy, but it's an experience he had. <laughs> he may, yes, right. That's right. I mean, galaxies aren't that easy to move, you know. Well, and, and he didn't <laughs> got a lot of uh, inertia. <laughs> uh, well, or even what I was more amazed with, I didn't even consider that aspect. What I was more amazed with was that he had that experience. Yeah, he had some kind of galactic experience, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, he now since has connected with his Orisha, and it comes in pretty fully. And so he's only been doing that about two or three years. He works with the Orisha called Ogum which is a force of, another force of fire, but it's that force of fire that, uh, um, where you see the movement in the fire that gives the force of movement. And uh, when you see him incorporate the Orisha, it's really, it's true, you know, and I know enough about the Orishas, you know, just from what I observed all that time that I was down there, he's, he's definitely incorporating that Orisha. And what sort of impact has this had on his life, his relationships, his, uh, his job, you know, his whatever? It's a, it's a wonderful thing. In the last two years, he took over management of a, a local company, mm -hmm. and he's been running that company, took it from a state of um, uh, the company was going to go into, um, you know, um, close or go into bankruptcy. He now has made it a viable company. He's now on the board of uh, directors of the local chamber of commerce. He's on the board of directors of the Rotary Club. I mean, his whole life, just like bingo, prior to me knowing him, he was doing what a lot of young kids in America do these days. He was into this, and he was into that, and he was into this, and, you know, yeah. all of that. And, and, his, and here's a whole other interesting thing. His family now comes, and he comes from a very... Um, Christian-based family, and so I asked his mother, you know, what, how can she reconcile this with uh, the group that she's with, because they're very, you know, conservative, very conservative, and she said, this is the only thing that's brought my family together, hmm. and that's why I come. That's cool. So, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's the success of it all, really. Yeah, only in Mount Shasta. I don't know if you could pull this off in Peoria quite yet, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you probably could, though, because people are kind of waking up all over. Um, so, uh, so this is now. That, so, there's a whole chapter in your story about exploring the universe. Do we want to get that into that yet, or have we not fully yeah, done, just, done justice to all yeah. the other things we've talked about? Yeah. Okay. So you, you say you uh, no. Though this is the question I have now. You say. Uh, 
I can, I, I can see into the universe. I choose to work with Hiawatha and Vovo Anamalia to, and let them guide people to see the universe. Um, and you, in some other places, maybe when we were talking or some of the things I read, you talk about how you do spend a fair amount of your time exploring the universe. So talk about those explorations a little bit. Um, when I, okay, so I left the TM movement, I was living a very ordinary life, meditating twice a day, um, and then I, you know, start going down to Brazil, and, you know, I'm just caught up in learning the process, so I'm really not doing anything with the meditation out of the ordinary, and I'm not doing anything with my own consciousness out of the ordinary, just focusing on trying to get this process down. And then um, I'm, I'm at a point where I can start to be a medium on my own. I'm given sort of the authority to do that, you know. Uh, again, it's a very structured process. You don't just sort of go out and willy-nilly do like that. It, you're taught how to do all that, how to uh, work with the public, and you're only taught with this being to work with the public, and then, then you're taught to work with the public with that being, and so on and so on. So I was very caught up in all of that. And um, my sessions with people would be maybe half an hour or an hour. And more of it was allowing people just to ask their own questions. So again, nothing out of the ordinary was really happening other than, you know, people were walking away feeling good. You know, whatever they wanted to know about, they were feeling was being resolved for them. So, uh, and I was down in Marin County at that time. I was down in Tiburon, and I, um, let's see, I went to Brazil in 1996, and I moved to Mount Shasta in 2008. So about a year before I moved to Mount Shasta, there were a couple people that wanted to come and work with Hiawatha, and they had sort of advanced questions about wanting to know about the universe. And one lady um, was working with... Um, the, the phenomena of Gaia and the phenomena of um, bringing forth new wisdom for women on earth and was very um, uh, touched by the uh, Greek culture where uh, they say that there were women that you know had virgin births and all of that and wanting to understand that phenomena so she wanted to come and ask Hiawatha questions about how all that could happen and uh, what is the relationship with Gaia, and, and how did these women, how were they connected, and so on. So in that session, Hiawatha took her away from our galactic system and took her out into the universe. And Sophia came forward. Sophia of the traditions that you read about. Uh, Greek down here. of wisdom. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't know anything about Sophia. You know, it certainly wasn't anything I could have conjured up. So, when you, just to interject, so when you say that Hiawatha took her out of the universe like that, um, presumably the two of you are sitting there having this session. Um, are, are you saying things out loud at this point, or are you just kind of like working on some level of consciousness, and then she correspondingly is having subjective experiences of the, that you've just described? Yeah, I step out of the picture, Hiawatha steps in, and then he takes her verbally on a meditative journey. So you yeah. are actually speaking, Hiawatha through you is speaking. Correct. And, and then she's sitting there with her eyes closed or something, and just as he speaks, she experiences where, she, where he leads her. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And 
so so her subjective experience was actually of you know perhaps losing awareness of herself sitting in a chair and, with you, but actually going out beyond the universe. Exactly. Well, she didn't go beyond the universe. She went beyond the galactic system. She was still within the universe. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant galaxy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and so and there she was out there. And then, and I don't know, I'd have to listen to the tape. I don't know whether Hiawatha said Sophia's come in or she said it. Mm-hmm. But somewhere along the line, Sophia came forward. Did your voice and change? Then, pardon? Did your voice change when Sophia, from a man, man's voice to a woman's voice when Sophia came in? As I you spoke? I don't know. I'd have to go back to the tape. I don't... I don't uh, okay, maybe that's a superficial question. Yeah, 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 know. yeah. It's interesting, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. I, I don't remember that. Uh, I'd have to go back and listen to that tape again. Okay, no problem. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, so that, that was some though. filler, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. okay, so continue. Well, just that, and that yeah. there, had, there was this connection, there was this exchange of knowledge. Mm-hmm. that uh, she was thirsting for, yeah. and even some of it that she didn't even know about. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the, the turning point where um, he was starting to take people um, beyond the earth uh, and uh, taking them into our galactic system. And then actually most of those um, sessions were he was taking them uh, beyond the earth to where they were before they came to the earth. Mm-hmm. So most of those sessions were like that. Meaning like they might have lived on some particular planet in some other star system or something, and they, he took them there, or what? That happened with some people, mm-hmm. but most of the people, um, he was more interested to take them to that place where they were before they just came to this lifetime. I see. So some kind of intermediary stage that we live between lives, he took them to that place where they had been before they were born into this life. Exactly. Which is not necessarily in some geographic location in the galaxy, but is on some level or other. It's more like a preparation for coming into the Earth level. Yeah. And why would we want to go there? Okay, well, then both he and Bobo started doing that. Bobo means grandmother, by the way. Uh-huh. So that's the, that's the Portuguese word for grandmother. Now, why her name is Ana Melia, I have no idea. <laughs> that's how it is. <laughs> um, so both of them started doing that. And, and both of them spend a lot of time, more so Bobo now, with taking people to that place because she has them preview the life that they're living now that they saw before they came here. And she says it's like a, a movie screen. And then when they come here, they um, enter into the picture. And what they didn't have when they're looking at the movie screen is they didn't have the emotional uh, interaction with the film. Mm-hmm. They were just seeing, you know, they were um, uh, putting together the mother and they were putting together the father. They were all making all these arrangements and, and they were going to have these brothers and sisters and it was all prearranged. So she right. has them go back and see all of those situations. Then she brings them back to their life right now and it has an impact on them. They I see. imagine it would, yeah. I mean, you, you, you realize that so much of what you're going through was your choice. Exactly. That's the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, and that brings up a whole other thing. Both of their teachings are giving people full responsibility, 100%. Mm-hmm. You're not connected to this. You're not beholden to that. Uh, it's time to see who you are. Right. And 100%. And you're 100% responsible for your health, for your whatever, 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 your relationships with people, 100% responsible. And I would say that out of all of this, that's what their teachings are about. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's difficult. Uh, there'll be people, 
with Hiawatha, his te his process, the meditation process, seems to have a more long-ranging effect on people, and people will come and see him, and then I may never see those people again. It's like he really did something, you know, and they just they got it, you know. Whereas with Vovo, they come back and they work again and again and again, and she works more on you know the problems in, in the life situation, mm -hmm. but she also connects them to the Orishas, and as more and more of the Orishas come forward for them, um, you know, and then, and then there's that integration, because she only comes in once a month. They only work with both of them once a month, and that's about as much as people can, you know, take. Do you encourage people, do you still instruct people in TM, or do you encourage people to practice a TM or something like it on a regular basis to kind of, like, provide a better foundation for all this? Well, I'm finding with Hiawathas that he gets people out there and, like that, mm -hmm. whereas it took us four or five years to really get it, mm -hmm. you know? And he just, within one session, people get it. Mm -hmm. But I did have, uh, there was a period of time where I gave some uh, talk. We have a place called the Shasta Yoga Center, and I gave some talks there on Brahman consciousness. And interestingly enough, there would be these old TMers that would show up at, mm -hmm. <laughs> at the class, and some of them were uh, TM teachers. And some of them were just people with their own meditation. And so what I did in that case was just kind of got people on the right path. Like there was one lady that came that was doing concentration. And, you know, she's getting headaches and all of that. So I gave the knowledge of what we gave as TM teachers. I didn't give mantras or initiation, but I gave the concepts. Of effortlessness. And just helped, just yeah. helped people. Yeah. So... Um do you spend time exploring the universe on your own as opposed to just helping others do so? Like, do you sit down twice a day or maybe an, uh, for an hour in the morning or whatever and just go out and explore? I find that during the sessions, especially with Hiawatha, mm -hmm. that I'm right there when he goes outside the universe, mm -hmm. and it's like, bingo, I've got it. You know, now yeah. it's, but now it's there. Mm -hmm. So it's, there's no need to kind of go there. You know, I don't have that. Although it's interesting what you ask because... I live in an environment where the econ um, I live in one of the poorest counties in California, and I live in a very small area of only about 4,000 people, and the economics have really hit this area hard, and people have left, you know, in droves. You know, there'll be spiritual people come up here, they can't establish themselves, they leave. So I experience the burden of that for the community, and I also experience the effect of it in my own life. So what I find, like for instance, the question you're asking. There was somebody that asked about one of her sessions with Hiawatha. So the other night, um, you know, and I was just feeling this way in my life. The other night, I went and listened to that tape and was writing down what Hiawatha was saying. And at the end of the tape, it was like, I don't have any problems anymore. I feel great. I can handle all what's in front of me. Mm. <laughs> so I, it, it, sort of, it sort of happens more in that way when I'm trying to get ready uh, uh, the information ready for uh, to put as uh, study materials for people or to answer people's questions or eventually I'm working um, I'm taking this television production class out at the College of Siskiyous which is our local community college uh, to become a producer out there and then I want to take uh, I've got hundreds of hours of Vovo and Hiawatha and I want to start taking that material and uh, putting it into DVDs so that um, people will have access to it so that's kind of that process of doing all of that is sort of how I get integrated back into the experience. Is it in video form or audio form or both? I've been doing both. 
Well, you could put that on the internet too. I mean, yeah. You know. Well, I, I just put a few short clips of uh, Volvo yeah. and Hiawatha on their letter, just three-minute things, mm. um, just to sort of. For me, I, here's the other thing. For me, it's like I'm so much of an American. Mm-hmm. It's still a bizarre process to dress up as Hiawatha and dress up as Volvo and Amalia and let them come through me. Do you so actually physically dress up differently? You, yeah, you, but, put, you, you put on some kind yeah. of headdress or something. It's really interesting, and it started with the uh, tradition of the Orishas, because when people would incorporate the Orishas, and the Orishas would come into that vessel, and then they would start to dance, and then the vessel would start to, you know, the energy would come out of the vessel and go into the room. Mm-hmm. What happened was in that tradition, they didn't want to look at the body of the medium. They wanted to see the clothes of the sort of layers and layers and layers of joy that was going out. So if you look at uh, down in Bahia at the costumes of the um, uh, saints, the uh, Maina Santos or the Paina Santos, or the, they call them Babala Rishas or Yala Rishas, like they're the, the, the gurus, and, and the people that are um, incorporating those Rishas, they have these beautiful costumes like for Oshun, which is one of the, uh, the waters of the rivers and, and just full of opulence and affluence. They have these beautiful golds and yellows and and colors and everything. So that tradition has been going on since Africa, actually. And then when uh, they started to integrate it into the uh, native tradition, then they started to dress the um, uh, the mediums in the clothes of those uh, entities that they were working with. Mm-hmm. And I actually love, I, I really love the process, and I can see the um, uh, value of it because, for instance, with Hiawatha, he wants you to experience his presence. He doesn't want you to be thinking about me. Yeah. You know, and to get sidetracked off him onto, well, this is Andre. She looks funny doing this. He doesn't want. He doesn't want that to be uh, yeah. part of the equation. Uh, it totally reminds me of Davy Baba, which Ama does. I don't know if you've ever gone to see Ama, the Hugging Saint, but she does this thing on the last night of every tour visit, <clears throat> where she, which she calls Davy Baba, where she embodies Davy. And she dresses up as Davy, and the whole vibe in the room changes dramatically. And especially at the very end, there's like this blast furnace of darshan that comes through, and you know, her eyes are like this, and it's like an amazing experience. But um, that's exactly it, a hundred percent. Yeah. And see, she's dealing with a force that's out there. Now, right. it's uh, it's hard to say. I don't. I I would have to think on it whether it's a force of nature or a being within that force. Or being that exists out, it's it's hard to say where all that is. Or whether she's an avatar of that, and she just removes a lot of the veils at that point and just lets it it shine through fully. Yeah, that's exciting. But that's the same phenomena. It's the same mechanics, Mm -hmm. you know. And one day, you know, Bobo always says that she's she's sort of um, she's very sarcastic. She calls them the science people. She's very sarcastic, and she says the science people, you know, if they saw this at this moment, they would blah, blah, blah. You know, but she, but she always puts it out there because I'm thinking she's hoping that they'll start to think about, okay, take this example, for instance, of, um, of you looking at her, and how can she bring in this force? Now, you know, a science person, in order to make it real, is going to have to be able to measure that. It's going to have to be able to explain it in their language. But in the meantime, there's a lot of people like you and I that, you know, we don't need to wait for the scientists to do that. We feel the reality of it, and we respond to it and, you know, pursue it and so on. Mm-hmm. It's funny because she stopped doing Davy Baba in India because she said in India people un- expect Davy to look like a young girl. And now she's 58, and so she says she still does it in the West because people don't know, <laughs> don't know what to expect <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's a, it's the same sort of thing, yeah. you know? You don't want to look at the medium 
because you get caught up in the medium and not the uh, reality of what's coming through. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, so you should go see her sometime when you get the chance. It's quite a I quite did the hug when she came to San Rafael. Um, oh, okay, good, yeah. Yeah, I got my hug. It's kind of a mob scene there, but... <laughs> um, all righty, so... Um, have we really done justice then to this whole thing? You, you say now I can see into the universe. I mean, have we? Is there anything else you want to milk from, yeah, that, from yeah, that statement? Yeah, yeah, about Hiawatha's work. Uh-huh. Because what he does now, and the first time he did it with me uh, when I was learning how to incorporate him, he took me to the edge of the universe, and I'd never been there. I'd been into consciousness, but I'd never been to what was called the edge of the universe. Hmm. And when I got there, I was actually afraid. Oh, my God. You know, and I looked over, you know, and I couldn't see anything on the other side. Do you ever read but, Douglas Adams, uh, Hitchhiker's no, uh, Guide to the Galaxy? There's, no. Uh, there's, there's a chapter on the restaurant at the end of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so real that, you know, it was like, oh, my God, you know, do I really want to go there? Am I going to be able to get back again? Hmm. That was my concern. But what happened well, was it just is, pure black emptiness or something? It, it, what I saw initially was just pure white. You know, and I couldn't see any details. I couldn't see anything within it. You know, it was just like a flat, mm-hmm. like that. And it was sort of like, well, you know, it was like, what's next? You know, come on. But now I've, you know, now, you know, again, this integration process, you can't just do it all at once. You've got to, you know, prepare for it. So what he does is he takes people um, on a journey starting with the earth, and he asks them to use their imagination. And he, he has them uh, connect with, like, the forest with trees, with animals in the forest. But what he does is, in the um, visualization process, he has them become aware that 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 tree is aware of them, or that animal is aware of them. So they start to enter into a communication with that phenomena. And then they start to receive messages, or receive a gift from that animal, or that bird, or that river, or whatever. So he starts out there, where people are comfortable, then he lifts them off the earth, and he, and he has this sort of way in which he does that, and then he lifts them where they become outside the earth, and then he spends some period of time adjusting their bodies so that they can see their body is transparent and filled with light, so they don't see it as this physical form that we see it as right now. And then he um, introduces them to his people, his sky people, and has them uh, get familiar with how to um, operate in in that area of the universe, and how to. And then he has them um, become aware that his people are aware of them, and you know, gifts are exchanged, and, and knowledge is exchanged, and wisdom is exchanged. So they have that experience at that level. Then he slowly takes them out of our galaxy. And then he spends a great period of time adjusting them to the universe. And then he expands them beyond the... He actually takes them through the folds of the universe, so they're folding out to the outer side. They don't just kind of go through linear, but he has them go through in an an expanded way. And then they're outside the universe, and then he keeps reaching them further and further and further and further back to where they start to experience their own origins. And he's saying that their origins are time-specific, that they all came forth at a moment, but they came forth, um, first of all, as a presence. And then he has them separate themselves from that experience. So it's a reality that exists somewhere, 
and and then he has them you know coming back and starting to experience all the presences and all the souls that are outside the universe introduces them to the souls that created the universe he doesn't say it's just you know one thing that happened god and it got created he says it's a very elaborate sophisticated process so he has them sort of get introduced to that uh, with some groups he has them you know see other universes it's interesting he sort of i'm getting that when that he's kind of tailoring it to each group that he's with because he gives different experiences different ways to look at it all with different people then he he shows them how to get back into the universe as an experience and and has them remember that moment when they first came to the universe and then um, you know has them go here and there and again depending upon the different groups and then approaches this galactic system that we're part of and then introduces them how to come into that environment and you know has them remember their moments when they actually first did that because there was a first moment for that and then he spends some time again depending upon the group sometimes he takes them right to the earth sometimes he goes to these other planetary systems depending upon um, you know who they were and a lot of times he'll have them go into the different heavens he'll have them go to the this loka or that heaven or you know these different places again different different things and then takes them to that moment where they first arrived at the earth you know and for some people it's actually been before the earth existed and they were part of the process of of witnessing that for some people it's right at the beginning of the earth for some people it's later on um i uh, at this best of mount shasta conference i had i i had a hiawatha workshop and there was a woman from the san francisco bay area who really wasn't into any you know spirituality at all she was kind of just coming up to mount shasta to see what it was about she told me at the after her session with hiawatha she said during the session when he brought her to the earth for her first time she said i saw myself growing a lemurian body she didn't know anything about she lemuria she didn't know what that was or anything else. yeah you know so it's like it's really pretty amazing you know so do I, I wanted to crack a joke that it must be hard to get up and go to work the next morning after all this but <laughs> but um do, when having gone do, do most people go through all this with the same vividness and clarity with which you're describing it or do, with some people is it just sort of a vague kind of feeling i don't know it seemed like that but i wasn't really clear on it you know that kind of thing no it seems like they're all pretty clear now i did find with two women recently on the journey when he took them into the gala- galaxy and then out into the universe they stayed in the galaxy they listened to what he was saying about the other stuff but they said they didn't journey there and then i realized so they didn't want to go farther than the galaxy in other yeah, words yeah yeah and then i realized there's some people that are just not ready for this experience yeah you know and well, that the galaxy but, itself would be a bit of a stretch i mean it's 100,000 light years across or something yeah yeah you know <laughs> and he and he does you know he does talk, unfortunately you know he doesn't talk to all the the science mm-hmm. verbiage but he does talk at it in terms of you know getting them to experience the expansiveness of it and they do have that reality but i really and that's why i say that this knowledge is 100 years ahead of its time i'm dealing with a specific group in mount shasta that are interested in spirituality and even among those people only a small portion have come to this experience because more of them are are experiencing uh working with the ascended masters within our galactic system working with this planet or that planet and that's their comfort zone you know mm-hmm. but to get them to go further back in terms of their own soul soul 
you know, they can do the I am presence, but it's sort of like safe in the com comfort of bringing the I am presence right here inside their body rather than going to where it came from. Mm. So um, it's interesting, you know, and again, this refinement of how we're looking at it all, I get all of that from how Maharishi trained us. You know, we, we have this ability to look at all these details, but even when people are doing their spiritual journeys, at least even up here in Mount Shasta, they're not going very far. You know, I mean, for them, it's like as big as it can get. But when you explore it and compare it to, you know, all of the phenomena that exists out there, they're still within a little corner of the universe. Because um, you can access God, you can access the Creator, you can access the I Am Presence anywhere and everywhere. But still, it's not the full picture of who they are. Are you able to do this with people remotely, like over Skype, or do they have to be sitting in the room? I'm starting to think about I might do that, and I'm starting to figure out how to do that. I'm going to try to um, – there's a guy, uh, he reminds me a lot of you. If you ever come to Mount Shasta, I want you to meet him. His name is Sahadev. He's a wonderful person, and he has this company called Blue Skies Unlimited that uh, does audio and video and stuff. So he's been videotaping uh, some of those sessions. I, I, other sessions, I just do it with this little camera. I've got a, it's kind of homespun. But I'm trying to get material together to make a DVD and to get that out there. And then if people want to do like a webcam type thing, um, then I'll do that. But I'm still needing another um, up and through the fall semester to know how to edit these videos at that COS to take those classes. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to move in that direction so that because it's, you know, what I'm finding about Mount Shasta, people love Mount Shasta. They're drawn here. It's a spiritual destination. But it, especially with this economy these days, it's just a hard track for a lot of people to actually come here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's good. Um, very interesting. Uh, we've, we've gone a little over two hours. and uh, Oh, my gosh. We probably <laughs> shouldn't go too much longer. But <laughs> right, that's enough. Know, I, I've really been enjoying this, and, and there's really such richness in it. And I think it's good to hear all the stuff you've been saying. I think it's good for people to kind of stretch their concept of what spirituality is, and even though maybe not everybody would find it relevant to them to explore all the things you've been talking about, it, at least it's good to perhaps acknowledge that it's relevant for some people, and you know it may be relevant for them somewhere down the line. Um, and I mean, there's a tendency for it's like Ajashanti said it very nicely. He said, you know, awakening can be so intoxicating almost. It's as if you wake up to an aspect of reality and there's something inherent in that which makes you feel like this is the totality, this is it. Uh, but there are so many different aspects and so many different flavors and um, it's like you know f the blind man and the elephant. You, it's it's not just like a tree trunk, it's not just like a snake, it's not just like a wall. There, there's a much bigger picture and um, I'm always kind of probing and prodding when I do these interviews to have people sort of um, perhaps um, acknowledge or, or suggest where they think this might be going for them or where it has gone since their initial awakening. And I think you provided a really fascinating picture of where it's gone for you because I think the uh, sort of awakenings you had back in the 70s were uh, every, every bit as much as, as people who are now setting themselves up as teachers have had and are, are kind of proclaiming to be the be-all and end-all. Um, and it's interesting to see how much um, you've been able to elaborate that into you know, something very diverse. And it could very well be, I mean, speaking in, so in this egalitarian way, it could very well be that other people 
would go off in completely different directions than you've gone after having established consciousness as you know the foundation and, and totality of life. Uh, but they might find completely different ways to elaborate it and unfold it and en enrich their experience of it and their their interaction with other people and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but you you've obviously been called to do it this way and you're doing a good job at it. <laughs> and we'll see where it goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting too. I mean, it's it's life is fun, isn't it? It's kind of kind of an adventure, and uh, you never know where it's going to take us. I'll tell you what my guidepost is, where my mentor is right now. Mm -hmm. My mentor is the phenomenon of Sat Yuga, mm -hmm. because when I read those books at the UC library, and I was reading about Manu and things like that, I realized a lot of that was man created, and a lot of the knowledge that we have, even from the Vedas, is still confined within Kali Yuga. Mm -hmm. So my observation is that there's a phenomenon called Sat Yuga that we're just barely peeking into, really, you know, and um, that's what I want to see if I can unfold as much of that as possible. What was it like during that time? You know, we've got all that, you know, consciousness and it unfolds on itself and blah, blah, and all this wonderful stuff, but I think there's details there that are so extraordinary that we haven't even, even the concept of there being more details hasn't even occurred to us yet. Yeah, and there may be other planets, other places in the universe where people are already living life with that degree of, you know, that quality. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, but it, it might, it seems phantasmagorial to we here on Earth, which, you know, is so gross and dense and so on, then we're just getting peeps of it. But, you know, who knows what our, you know, our planet could become or will become, whether within our lifetimes or whenever <laughs> uh, nice to speculate alright well thanks um, this has been great I've uh, been talking with Andre Morgana an old friend of mine from decades back um, who lives in Mount Shasta California I'll be link linking to Andre's site from batgap.com and uh, you can get in touch with her through that link actually she has a couple of sites so I'll be linking to both of those and um, if you if this is the first time you've watched one of these shows, I think this is show number 113, so you have a little catching up to do. And I keep doing new ones each week, so there will be more. Um, and if you'd like to be notified of new ones as they're posted, just subscribe on YouTube or go to batgap.com and sign up for the email notification. There's also a discussion group there that gets quite lively around each interview. Um, you can also su subscribe to this as a podcast, so you can listen to the audio uh, if you'd like to do such things while you drive or commute. And um, there's also a donate button, and uh, I have a lot of plans for this. I would ultimately like to be doing this full-time. I'm quite far away from that still, but uh, it really helps to receive donations, even small ones, you know, like five bucks a month. There's a subscription thing where you can automatically send five dollars a month. If enough people did that, if everyone who listened to this did that, I could retire. <laughs> but uh, everyone doesn't do anything. So, uh, yeah, but whatever you feel like doing, it would be great. But I, I intend to keep them free and available for anybody who wants to watch. So, uh, thanks a lot. And uh, thank you, Andre. And uh, we'll be in touch. And uh, for those listening or watching, we'll see you next week.